This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. All right, we are in Romans chapter 4 this morning. If you want to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, open your app on your tablet or your phone, set those things to silent, if you will, uh, for the sake of those around you. And as we dig in here, another installment of the letter of Romans, you know, over the past weeks, uh, we have been looking at this book uh, through the internal cues in that letter that tell us that this letter is primarily about the transforming power of the gospel and what it means to be a new creation. Now, that in some ways is surprising to people, if they, especially if they've grown up in church, uh, particularly in the Protestant church, because uh, since the Reformation, we have primarily had our focus on what is often called the Romans Road, looking at some particular verses out of the larger context and creating for us a structure of understanding what it means to, uh, for personal salvation and justification, how God it works through those things, and so that has become the entire focus over the last 500 years when it comes to studying the book of Romans. Now, we don't want to discredit that because what was purchased in that time, in that upheaval uh, at that time, that Luther and others were pointing out to some things that were really significant in terms of church history and the history uh, of the body of Christ, and that there had been a loss of direction and, and things had begun uh, to be uh, completely moving a different direction than that of the whole gospel, uh, a focus uh, that was uh, in terms of doing things uh, for justification, in uh, terms of, of purchasing salvation, things like that. And so what they brought up, what they were directing and pointing out was really significant uh, because they had lost their way uh, over time and history. However, uh, the reality is, is that 500 years later, as we continue that conversation, that really the church has moved so clearly away from that and into a different direction that as we continue to focus on that, we're missing oftentimes the larger story of the book of Romans that has so much more to say to us than that alone. In other words, the story is so much bigger, and what we want to do is get the overall message that Paul intended for us to get, and not simply focus on one particular area. Again, I don't want to do anything to take away from what Luther and the other reformers did in that moment, but the reality is, is that we are not in that situation that they were in 500 years ago, and so it's important for us to step back and to make sure afresh in every generation, that we are reading what Paul said to us, not just reading what Luther was pointing out in his time period, in his situation. We don't want to do that because then we lose the beauty of the entire picture. So keeping that bigger picture in focus, we want to address all the topics in the letter. Today, here in chapter 4, we're actually closing out that first section of the letter to the Roman church. So if you want to think about it this way, most of us think of the book in terms of the chapters and verses. Those are the things published in your Bible that were created a long time ago just simply to help us find our way so that we could identify something and say, this is where you go to look for this verse. And it is helpful to us in that way. 
At the same time, it is not helpful because oftentimes the breaks in those chapters are not actually the logical breaks in terms of the context, uh, but also uh, we put headings in there and different things. We add more and more. And so oftentimes what ends up happening is we just read what somebody else who's gone on before us says, and we don't really engage with the text itself. In other words, we have a tendency to read in a rut, if you will. And so it's really important for us to take that step back. One of the tools I would recommend to you as we're even going through chapter 4 today is that it is great to take those bigger chunks and then print them out. Uh, one of the things I do for myself on a regular basis uh, uh, is to print out a whole entire section. So in this case, Romans 1 through 4, and then to print that without the chapters and verses and headings, uh, and then put that, like, say, on an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper, or if your printer will do something larger, where you could read it just like it would have been in a letter back in the day, where you were not reading it like a textbook, but you're reading it in terms of, like, how was that originally delivered, and then let the natural flow of the context come out to you. The other thing you can do with that is it's nice to sometimes take like a highlighter and point out that in those first four chapters, that whole thing of where Paul is dealing with his um, imagined uh, interloper, the, the person that he's kind of debating with in chapters two, three, and four, that you can highlight with different colors, the things of we and you and they and us and so that you can follow the line of reasoning. A lot of times when people get here to this point, they get confused. And it's not because the text is so complex, it's that the letter is long. And what we end up doing is we end up dropping pieces along the way, and we no longer know who he's referring to. The other thing we can do is we can point out here that in this context he's going to be making references to uh, Genesis, and we can take some notes about Genesis in the column, in the side column there, that will help us understand what's being said here, because his expectation as he is discussing this with his Jewish audience, remember his audience is a mixed audience in Rome, predominantly Jewish, but also a number of Greek Christians now are in that place, and there's discussion going on between the two groups trying to understand things. And so Paul is addressing some specific issues with the Jewish Christians. They would have been very familiar with that other text. And so he assumes some things that you and I may or may not be aware of. And so we want to go back and make sure we put those things out there to get hold of that. So chapters 1 through 4 Focus on the situation that has been caused by the fall. He's recognizing the goodness of God's creation and yet the corruption that has come in and how that has led us astray. Uh, we look at those things through uh, the revelation of the earth and all of its glory, the cosmos and all of its glory that tells us that God is good, that He is kind, that He is merciful, that He gives good gifts to His people. And then chapters 5 through 8 then lead into this discussion about what the problem is and how the new creation solves those issues, what he is calling us to to become, not as fallen people, but as the new creation. When he says that we are a new creation in Christ, he means that there is a wholesale change that is taking place. And so it leads to that crescendo in chapter 8, the expectation of God and what he is doing and redeeming not just us, but what he is doing in his witness throughout all of the cosmos, what he is doing and how 
that what he is doing in us affects all of the cosmos. So then as he closes out those remaining chapters, he's talking about what a transformed people look like, how they affect the universe, how his word and works are working through the universe, and we end up with this much bigger, grander picture than just, and I say this with care, very careful, don't, don't say something I didn't say, but just salvation. Now, salvation is key to it, but remember that there is a bigger story of which salvation is a part of, not the entirety. And so that is really important that we hold on to all of those pieces. So central to the letter is justification and salvation, but only a part of the overall message. So our goal is to keep that bigger picture in focus as we look throughout the letter. Now, in those four, first four weeks, as we looked at the nature of the old creation, the fallen one, and looked at the whole thing of revelation, both the scripture, specific revelation, and creation, general revelation, that all of these things are sharing a common message to us, that God is good, and that there are things within creation that speak of his goodness and what we would come to expect. So that whether you were raised in a believing home or not, that you, know, that you should know that God is good. He gives us good food to eat. He gives us beautiful skies. He gives us uh, the, the waters of the land. He gives us good food. Uh, there are all these experiences relationally and everything that talk about God's goodness and even if you weren't raised in a healthy home environment, you also know what's not good. You know that like, hey, fathers are not supposed to be abusive to their children. You know, hey, moms are supposed to be loving and caring. That Nature itself speaks of these things to be true. We know that murder is wrong. We know that these other things are wrong, that creation, everything about it tells us both what is good and why other things are not good, why they are not part of the natural order of things and how God created it to be, and that is the fallen situation. And so into this, he's injecting how we move from the fallen toward this new creation. That's where he's building his uh, point, is, and we're going to wrap that up here in chapter 4 today, prepping the ground for chapter 5. With that said, let's get into Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Uh, like I said, use whatever translation you have that you've got in your lap that you like to read, Please follow along in that translation. That one's my favorite this morning because you're reading it. And then take it home and study it. Amen? Amen? All right, let's take a look. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we read these words. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Remember, he is writing at this point in the second person singular, addressing this other mysterious person, this imagined other interloper, if you will. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. In this blessing, then only for the is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith has been counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He, saw, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the inheritance, it, for, um, for if it is of the inheritance of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents to the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should not become the father of many nations as has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief, made, uh, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So like I said, I think it's really important that probably you print this out and like draw some lines maybe that you don't necessarily want to draw in your Bible, or maybe you'll want to go back and redraw them in uh, after you've figured out how you want to draw them in. But I would really seriously take like something like Bible Gateway. It's free. You can go on there and print that out sends, you know, without the chapters, verses, etc., and get idea of what the context is like. So part of that is simply this, that you and I have a lot of pieces now that we need to pick up from chapters 1, 
2, and 3, so that when we get to chapter 4, that it makes sense. When you and I do this on a Sunday morning like this, where we're not reading for the letter for the first time, and it wasn't written directly to us, it takes a while to unpack every piece, right? And so we're getting word out weeks out, not having sat there like they did the first time, where he read the letter for the very first time from beginning to end without any explanation, and the people understood what he was saying because it was specifically written to them in their situation. You and I don't have that leisure. We don't have that comfort. So you and I are standing here unpacking it piece by piece, and then the problem is by the time we get here, you know, five weeks out to chapter four, we're going, wait a minute, what were those other pieces? And so we've got to go back and pick them up, and that's where confusion sets in. That's why I think it's good to print all of that out, write your little notes, and then you can go back and look at it in one big hole rather than looking at it in pieces. But I don't think anybody really wants to be here while I preach all through four chapters of the book of Romans today, right? Anyhow, okay, so... Um, so remember that there is this debate with this imagined interloper, and uh, in this persona that he is debating is kind of a sense of a self-assured, almost smug sense that of this Jewish Christian looking toward his Greek Christian brother. And the reason for that, let's not look down on them because it happens in churches too when people become new believers and they come in and they don't understand things and the Christians kind of go, well, why don't you get that? Or I don't understand why you don't, under, why you don't understand. And so oftentimes we explain things in a way or we use language in a way that doesn't connect. Even in this case where these Jewish Christians and the, and the Greek Christians were still speaking the same language, that would have been Greek in that set setting, that they were even using the words in a different way. And so that informs part of the, that creates part of the dissonance. Have you ever used words in a different way from somebody else and you realize you're saying the exact same things, but you mean something entirely different? Like if you've ever talked to anybody from Australia. No, I'm kidding. But no, no, seriously though, there is some reality to that, isn't there? I mean, uh, we're using the same English language, and yet I know when I'm talking to my friends from Great Britain or from Australia or India, and we're using the same words, but oftentimes we have different things that we mean between those things. Well, now we're talking about someone who is using these ideas, explaining these concepts, but one group of people has grown completely outside of the faith and are now recent introducing, have a recent introduction to the faith. And they have ideas and expectations and words are loaded with certain meanings for them. At the same time, we have the Jewish Christian who has ideas and things that go right back to Torah and they have the history, the culture, the understanding. And so there's ex expectation as they're reading together the same things, having the same discussion, that there is a dissonance in that setting. And so the Roman church is having a hard time getting along at this moment. So Paul writes this letter to them in the middle of that, even though he's never met them, he's hoping to come to them soon, but he feels the need to express some things because otherwise there's not going to be anything left by the time he gets there. So he writes into this situation, and Paul is addressing these Jewish Christians who are frustrated with their Greek Christian brothers. And he's talking to them and explains to them 
that although they have this great heritage and this great understanding of the scriptures because of their background, heritage, and traditions, that they still share the same fallen condition. We, would, we can connect with that in the simple fact that if you grew up in the church, you know that you're not any better than the person sitting next to you that didn't grow up in the church. You know that inherently. Now, here's the problem. You may not always think that way. If I pressed you and I asked you, you would say, of, of course, we have the same problem. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We say that on a regular basis in church, but then there's the underlying attitudes that creep into our hearts where we do think of ourselves as being different or better, either because of culture or history, or we grew up in the church that had the right name on it right, or we baptized the right way, or we practiced communion the right way, or whatever else, and we have this sense sometimes of a bit of superiority that is unspoken. We're not supposed to say those things. Those are not Sunday school answers. It didn't happen, and I know you would never say those things, but Anybody here, you know that secretly there are things in your heart sometimes you think that you know you shouldn't repeat. Don't raise your hand, but, but you know there's things that you shouldn't think or repeat, and yet they're there polluting your thoughts as you're wrestling through situations, dealing with people, wrestling with the text, etc., right? So we, none of us come to this like as a blank sheet. We come with all of our ideas, concepts, history, very much a part of what's happening as we're reading the text. So, Paul is challenging them, and he's challenging specifically the, this character in their confidence that they have in their background in history. At the same time, Paul is expressing to them what great value there is in growing up a Jewish person who comes to faith in Christ. Appreciation for the history, the heritage, the culture. And we talked about that last week, about the advantage that people have that in growing up in Christ and that I recognized in my Christian friends that they didn't have to unpack a lot of things from a secular or godless kind of history that I had to unpack. Uh, they had things that they had grown up with, understandings of things that gave them a certain uh, advantage and that I admired that in them and wished that I had had that, uh, which over time, you know, uh, as I've grown in my understanding and everything, I, not as much, right, because now I have my own understanding, but initially that sense of dissonance between what they knew and what I knew was huge. And so Paul says, yes, that's a very real value, but at the end of the day, you still have the same problem. At the end of the day, you still need the same solution. The solution is Jesus. And so he wants them to understand that and have a good grip on that and points out that look who God is, like if we're holding all these chapters together, look at who God is and who he has been. It's consistent that God is good, and that we know the difference between the fallen nature and the, what was intended, and we can see these things. Among these signposts in Jewish history, culture, and heritage are the lessons of the law about Abraham as the father of faith, which is this wonderful inheritance to grow up with as a Jewish believer. What is meant to be honoring is not a polite dismissal or some kind of super crafty supersessionism where he is dismissing, 
But he points out that, look, the law is not the thing that saves you. He points out specifically that the inheritance of the law is not the law itself, nor circumcision, but faith. Now understand, when he's talking about that, when he says that the law is this inheritance, he's not referring to the Ten Commandments specifically. He's not using the law just in that sense. He's also not referring to the 333 kind of ritualistic laws that fill up the book of Leviticus. The law, Torah, is those first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? And so that is a, an understanding when they're using that word Torah that he's referring to the bigger picture of the law. He's not just talking about nomos, the kind of law that we practice where we say, do, you shall do this and you shall not do that. We're talking about the bigger sense in which story takes a big part of those first five books and explaining to us and instructing us. The word Torah in its primary uh, translation into English is not law, but instructions. The instructions. He's saying, because of the instructions, you know these, you have been instructed from birth. You've known these things. You have this long, long heritage and how wonderful it is. But here's what we know. That will not save you. Instead, it will point out your deficiency. It will point out how we fall short. It will, in, 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 in reality, it will condemn you, not justify you. This goes back to that conversation we had uh, over the course of this, of the difference between qualitative righteousness and quantitative righteousness. Quantitative righteousness is the Greco-Roman school of thought that looks at my pluses, I did these things right, and I did my minuses. And I get, put those things in a column, and I add them up, and I decide at the end, wow, look at what a great person I am. I had more pluses than minuses this week. I must be righteous. The answer, no. That kind of righteousness is what we call filthy rags, referring to the cloth that women used to take care of their monthly visitor. That's the direct reference. We say it politely now because, you know, the King James helped us clean up our language so that we don't say, your righteousness is like a tampon. That's what he's saying. I'm not saying that to be crude or for effect. He said, I just want you to understand, that's what your righteousness is like, the pluses and minuses. On the other hand, qualitative righteousness, the kind of righteousness we're talking about in the Hebraic mindset, is one that you are right by being in a right relationship. So Abraham is right because by faith, he put his trust, his confidence in God, and that entered him into a relationship with God. He is righteous because he is in a right relationship, not because he doesn't have pluses and minuses, but because specifically he is in a right relationship. You are counted as righteous by faith when you put your trust in God, not in his propositional statements, not in your ideas of truth, but in him, his personhood, that he is worthy of your trust, that you believe him over and against the evidence that is out there in the world, and you put your confidence in him and you relate to him. And think, if you think about it, every good relationship is bound up in trust. And every toxic relationship is bound up in the lack of trust. 
If I am in a good, healthy relationship with somebody, it's because I believe in the goodness of who they are. I believe I have confidence in how they conduct themselves, what they do, and when things are in dissonance to that, I believe in, I have confidence in, trust in, that they're going to, they are still going to behave a different way than that one event in their life. I walk with them, I'm in relationship with them because there's an expectation of who they are. I have put my trust in them, not in each individual act that they commit. Hello? Likewise, they are making the same kind of trust in me. Not in my individual acts, but then there is the rightness of relationship. I put trust in them. However, if I exist in that place of qualitative kind of righteousness, that where it's all in the pluses and minuses, then I begin to relate to people in a completely different way, where everything that goes afoul, I go, well, I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I can trust you. So in really toxic relationships, that's how it goes. There's a constant sense that the other shoe's going to drop. There's the constant sense of which I'm rubbing your nose in your mistakes, the things that you do wrong. I am not trusting you. I, am not, I do not believe in the rightness about you. I believe in the rightness about myself, and I am sitting in judgment of you. That's self-righteousness in the truest sense. It doesn't just exist religiously. It also exists in your homes. So, in this whole thing, Paul is trying to get them to understand that, that relation, reminding them of that relationship, and he is telling them about something that they, as Jewish Christians, should know. That Abraham was not called the father of faith because he was circumcised. He's not called the father of faith because he kept the Ten Commandments. Remember, the Ten Commandments didn't appear for nearly 500 years after this conversation. He was counted as righteous because when God told him what he was going to do for him, he believed that. He put trust, he put his confidence in who God was despite the evidence. So you and I then scroll back to Genesis chapter 15. You can put your finger there, you can put a flag there. If you want to go back there, if you want to just make a note in your side notes and go back there later, I would encourage you to do that. Take some time to read Genesis 15, probably not in this moment. You probably forget everything else we're talking about. You'll be like, oh, wow, that's, you know, in 16 and then 17, and, and then you'll look up and go, what, what was he talking about? But there in Genesis chapter 15, look, look the, where the original promise is made to Abraham, it's important that you and I get that context so that we can understand what the promise was made. Otherwise, we end up with a distorted view of everything else that happens and is unfolding there in chapter 4. If you and I look at the original promise made to Abraham when he was still Abram, God speaks and he tells him of a great reward. He's going to reward his faith. He is excited about his faith and he's going to reward his faith. And so then he tells him the first thing of what the great reward is. He says, your great reward is I am. In other words, what he is telling Abraham that the great reward is not that you get forgiveness of your sins, not that you're going to get all these other things. The great reward of your faith is this. You get me. Let that sink in for just a moment. The great reward of those who put their faith in God is not that they get their sins forgiven. Now, do not say something different than I just said. Don't go out and tell your friends, 
Hal says that we don't get our sins forgiven. I did not say that. That is a byproduct of the reward. The fruit, the great reward that he's talking about, he said that I am, that is your great reward. The whole purpose, the entirety for which you put faith, he put his faith in God is that I am. You will be in a right relationship with me. The entire summation of everything else that will fall from that or that will come out of that begins in this place. The great reward of faith is I am. Now, when you and I miss that point, the problem is if we make it all about our justification uh, and all about getting our sins forgiven, as then we begin to distort the gospel, even though we're taking truth, but we're distorting the gospel, and we begin to make it all about getting out of hell and getting into heaven and getting myself forgiven, and then we get people, we pray a prayer with them so that they can not go to hell and they can get their sins forgiven, and then we wonder why a little while later that there is no fruit in their life. Because the reward was never God. It was just not going to hell. It was just not suffering the consequences of your stupidity. And then we wonder why people are confused. And then we go, and then so the church has been preaching for generations a message that works like this. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace. They believe, and then we go, okay, now you need to do these things, and you need to do these things, and you need to go these, and they're like, whoa, time out. You told me back here it was grace alone. Now you're telling me I got to do all of these things, and like, I got to go to church and everything. And you're like, oh, man, this was a bait and switch. And you know what? They are right if you preach that gospel. That was the thing that Paul said that you, I can't believe that you've put your faith in a, another gospel, a different gospel than the one that was preached to you by the apostles. And we have to do that because we're desperate to try and show them, well, look, you, you, don't, just, you don't just go to heaven because you, just, you, got, you, know, you, you need to be in a right relationship with God. Now we start talking about relationship. Where was the relationship back here? Well, because we told them that it wasn't about a relationship. We told them it was about getting their sins forgiven, and now they're behaving just like we told them to. That is bait and switch. What is the great reward? I want to introduce you to the great reward. God is your great reward. You get to be in a relationship with him forever and ever and ever. And if that's not appealing, you're going to really hate heaven. Like, it will just be a tad cooler than hell. Because if you spend much time with people that you don't like, you know, like maybe Thanksgiving, I don't know. It's hard, isn't it? Or if you buy into the gospel of sin management, so you go to church and you behave yourself and you, put, you, you manage your sin and I, you know, I put on the happy church face, right? The gospel of sin management says, I behave myself and I don't do all these other things, but then I leave there and I go, oh, thank God I can be myself. And we crank up ACDC, highway to hell on the way out of the parking lot, going, ah, this is the real life. Because that is the real life. Who wants that? That constant sense of dissonance between who we actually are and going to heaven. And then we wonder why people do what they do. 
And so Paul is telling them the great reward, the great reward is a relationship with God. That, it's, that, that is the ultimate value. If we begin in that place, then see, works and faith are no longer in contradiction. If my great reward was Him, the spillover in my life is that as I get closer to Him and my life is transformed, those things I do, I will show you my faith by my works, right? It begins to make sense out of it. It begins to grow out of it as the overflow of the things that God is doing in that relationship in me, and it becomes the byproduct of it. It's not the goal of it. It's the byproduct. But the goal... The goal is to be with him forever, and that's what makes heaven so exciting. That's what makes heaven heavenly. And then he tells him, the second part of it, he tells him, I will give you an heir, but it's interesting enough, he doesn't point, when he says these things about giving him an heir, he doesn't say, well, I'm going to give you a seed line. He says, I will give you an heir. He will, this is what he's going to do. He will be a blessing. And Paul expounds upon us, going beyond that chapter in Genesis chapter 15, but to the bigger picture, that he will be a blessing to all the nations. He's not referring to country territories. That word ethnos that we translate nations means to every tribe, tongue, language, group of people, everybody all over the world. And he tells him that your heir will be a blessing to the nations, to the entire world. What's his promise? The great reward is this, that you get me and they get me. Everybody out there. And he's trying to make these Jewish Christians understand your great reward, the thing you've been looking for, the day you've been waiting for is unveiling itself right now. You not only got me, but now the nations have come to your doorstep. They need you to be their teachers. They need you to care about them. They need you to love them. This is your inheritance. Church, as the successive generations of the inheritance, our inheritance is not only that we get Him, but that the whole world would want to come to our doorstep. So why don't they? Because we've told them another gospel. There's nothing to eat of. There's no hope. Because we don't believe it ourselves. How can you live what you don't believe? That brings us back to Romans 4. Verses 3 through 5, and we read like this false tension between the, we read this tension between the wages and the gifts. And if we only read it through the lens of personal salvation, then we get the idea that it is just about me and my personal righteousness. But if we remember that the reward, what he was referencing, not what we want to make it into, not what the Reformation history told us it was about, I'm talking about what it actually says in this book, the B-I-B-L-E, 
When he's referencing these things in Genesis, and you and I go back and we read and recognize that we actually do need the Old Testament if we want to understand the New Testament and quit trying to rip the two apart and make it completely different gods, different stories, everything else, and we put it all back together the way it belongs, verse 1 says that God himself was Abraham's reward. Verse 5, his offspring would be as numerous as the stars. He's talking about that all those for all the generations, both Jew and Greek, everyone who would ever believe on him, those descendants are as numerous as the stars throughout all of history, throughout the entire witness. It's, un, it's unfathomable. It's powerful. There's billions of believers alive right now. And so Abraham's reward was not his personal salvation or his own genetic seed. The reward was God himself and all who would believe in ages to come. And he's saying, this, this is it. This is what I've been trying to tell you about. We don't only get saved, but we get God, the great gift and the bigger package. And then 4.13, Paul told them, and so it's through this lens of those first five books that we receive this promise, making it clear that God is not pitting the law against faith. He's not pitting keeping the law against faith or circumcision against faith. He is in fact saying that the law taught plainly that Abraham's great reward was himself, that, these are the, that this is all part of the greater inheritance and that's the beautiful gift. For both Jew and Greek, descendants as numerous as the stars. And so Abraham's trust in God then gets punctuated by this. Here he is, a hundred years old. Even today, that's old. You know, my, my stepdad's 97. It has reframed my whole thought about that. And he looked at his physical condition, and he looked at the barrenness of his wife, and he said, I believe you, God. I trust you. That is faith. See, faith is not the idea that I subscribe mentally to a bunch of propositional statements or someone else's concepts of truth where they go, well, these are the things that the Bible teaches and we put out our little propositions and we go, do you subscribe to those? And they go, yeah, okay, that sounds reasonable to me. And we go, oh, then you have faith. Now you just pray this prayer. That's not faith. Faith in the definition, working from the actual biblical definition of what he, and setting up that whole context, what Paul was trying to understand is that right here, the real faith was that he looked at what God was saying to him and he said, wow, that sounds amazing. That sounds actually statistically impossible. I'm looking at my body, it's as good as dead, and it becomes the foreshadowing of what it means to put your faith in Christ who was raised from the dead. He was painting this picture right here in this chapter, and he says he knew that he was good as dead, and he had the same confidence in God right at that moment, though he had never heard of the resurrection, though he would, it would not happen for thousands of years. He looked and he said, I believe God can do that, and that was the right kind of relationship, that trust in God that we were talking about from the very beginning. 
I believe you, God, even over all of my circumstances, my trials, my hardships, my questions, the things I do understand, the things I don't understand, and that that becomes the absolute exposition of the gospel. And then as people discover that in us, and they eat of the fruit of our lives, they eat of the bread of our lives, they come along with us and journey with us, at some point they go, man, that is a transformed life. That's, you're a whole other kind of creation. You're a whole completely different kind of person. And they, in that, they make decisions. And they say, I want that. Now we have something to pray about. Now we have the point of the baptism. Prior to that, not really. So I'm not saying that God can't do things in just a moment or whatever else. I, I, I can point to some things in the scriptures that where people in a moment... But can I just tell you that the entire, the weight of the witness comes back to this, where trust is something that's handed off from your life to the life of the people around you, that they develop a confidence in God because of your confidence in God. That's why it's a gift. Nobody earns it. Propositional statements and convincing you, that's called if anything was ever work salvation, that's it. But when I give you the gift of my life and you eat of the bread of my life and it builds confidence in who God is, not because I can dot all your I's and cross all your T's for you, but because you've tasted and seen that he is good and you say, I trust that God. Now, Here's the thing, zeroing in on this, I, I, we, next, you know, next, next time we'll get to chapter 5, but, but here, here's zeroing in on this. Listen, having God as our reward, that is really the whole point of chapter 4. It is really the whole point of that first four chapters. And so you and I are, reflect again on what makes heaven heavenly is that God's will is done perfectly and that's really, like, that's the invitation, right? For you and I to believe in his goodness and allow that goodness to be manifest in our lives, that is the power of transformation that we're talking about. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.